0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney,
1: a podcast so understated and sophisticated you'd think it was from Melbourne. <laughs> I'm Jed.
0: And I'm Alistair. And each week one of us comes up with an excellent one-liner to begin with, which you have done a fantastic job with this time, Jed, I must say.
1: Thank you, thank you. And
0: then after that we uh, we talk about a topic that we've brought in to surprise and delight the other. And I, last week I had one. Uh, a story about the First World War and conscription. But Mm -hmm. this week, we're waiting for a brand new exciting story from you, Jed. I had a clue. Uh, Would you be able to, to repeat it for us?
1: I will. The clue was, in the late 19th century, the colonial government was in the midst of a building spree in Sydney. Not just railways and sewers, but spectacularly grand brick and sandstone buildings, many of which are still with us today. In true Sydney style, though, the private sector wasn't far behind. This week, we're going to explore some of Sydney's most epic temples to 19th century consumerism and what remains of them today.
0: It's a beautiful clue. It um, got me excited because I believe I was talking about a couple of uh, department stores in our last episode, some of which had fires in them. And you mentioned that possibly some things that we discussed would come up in this episode. So I'm going to guess we'll have some content about uh, some department stores.
1: We will have lots to say about department stores this week. But before we do that, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Darawa people. And in my case
0: is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation.
1: And also the Eora people. Uh, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which this week's podcast history takes place all right
0: tell me about the palaces of consumerism
1: I'm going to take you all the way back to the 19th century Alistair as as mentioned as promised so I had an idea for the way the introduction to this episode would go I'd start talking about all these big famous buildings in Sydney from the late 19th century and we'd you know we'd talk about how they were built and over what time period and it'd build up to what the episode's actually about Mm. but when i did some cursory research on these public buildings i found out that they're not actually from the same era oh okay so it didn't work quite as well as i'd hoped but i want to get you in the mood for the big building showcase extravaganza yeah i picked out a couple of my favorite buildings that still stand today from the 19th century in sydney and these are public buildings to start with is that right yeah yeah Well, you've covered one. It's not my favorite, but it's probably yours. The Rum Hospital in season one. Oh, yeah. That's a very early one there. Mm -hmm. And we've mentioned Darlinghurst Jail a couple of times now. Yes. Also relatively early. Yeah. That's 1840s. Uh Uh-huh. What about Sydney Uni Quad? Oh, I feel like at some point in my life,
0: I've known a fun fact about it that I was able to like easily link up in my mind. I don't know. Maybe 1850s? Mm, 60s. Okay
1: uh we did touch on saint mary's cathedral next to hyde park in one episode do you remember the mcclays i think um fanny mcclay did a painting of it that was falsely attributed to her father
0: (laughs) i'd forgotten that but yeah that
1: (laughs) (laughs) typical female erasure not surprised
0: um i wouldn't know when that was built though i think that was around the same time as the town hall maybe but maybe not uh i don't know 1870 since we seem to be going chronologically
1: <laughs> that's a very good guess and good uh connection to town hall okay uh, so mary's was built over an extended period of time from 1868 to 1882 mm-hmm. and town hall was built from 1869 to
0: 1878 oh wow okay so really similar time. <laughs> yeah you nailed it wow that was lucky
1: Another favorite of mine is Customs House in Circular Quay, which also has a bit of a strange construction history you might know something about. I don't
0: know. I don't know anything about that, but I know the building.
1: So that was an 1840s building that was expanded dramatically in 1880s. And then, of course, it was expanded in 2003 into the building that it is today.
0: Okay, cool. That would make sense that it was originally quite an old building because that was the kind of hub of trade i guess very early on
1: yeah before customs house was built they were doing the customs business in like a terrace in the rocks okay a necessary upgrade yeah of course probably what i would have thought was one of the most epic sandstone public buildings in sydney from the 19th century but isn't in fact from the 19th century is central station uh
0: okay yeah I, there was that recent podcast series about the building of Central Station, and when so is that in the early 1900s?
1: Yeah, and because it was the third version, we had the Cleveland Paddock Station, the yeah. shed from we uh, know that one. our first episode.
0: No, your first episode, our second. I did the one about oh, the. Sorry. <laughs> <you> just
1: completely <laughs> erase that one.
0: <laughs> The one about the world championship fight. Yeah absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: A very important and significant episode in our history. <laughs> Not to be forgotten. <laughs> Not to be forgotten. Um, and then there was a rebuild of Central Station near to its current size. Yeah, they
0: slowly moved further north, right?
1: That in turn was replaced mm-hmm. by Central Station as yeah. we know it today. But what
0: about the, you haven't mentioned the post office though. That's a massive one.
1: Oh, the GPO. Yeah. That is an excellent one. And that does come into our story later on, you'll be pleased to know. But that wasn't why it was missing from this list. That's just um, This list was just a collection of random public works (laughs) that sprung into my mind. I think that might be 1880s, possibly,
0: um, maybe. Because I think there's some fact, like, it's less than 100 years after the first fleet arrived. When you put it in that context, it seems kind of unbelievable that such an enormous structure was built less than 100 years after kind of some disheveled convicts arrived in a couple of boats Mm.
1: so Alistair to compliment these impressive public edifices Mm. can you think of any impressive private edifices of the same vintage
0: Uh. (laughs) this is a good challenge this episode uh no I don't know when uh Mark Foy's building is from that was like that's one of the few department stores that I am familiar with and then the, the Hordens also had the, their big department store. It was completely torn down and is now a World Square um, development. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: well, while you think about that, why don't we start with those two? Yeah, that
0: would be wonderful.
1: So, Mark Foy's was opened by Francis Foy and his brother Mark. Although, while well, you might think Mark had the upper hand getting it named after him. Yeah, he him. did well for himself. They, in fact, named it after their father, who was also called Mark Foy. Uh,
0: so he was just lucky to be named after the dad.
1: <laughs> yeah, or cunning, I'm going I'm to say. <laughs> yeah. uh, the brothers opened their first store on Oxford Street in 1885 and then opened the store that is well known to this day on the corner of Liverpool, Elizabeth and Castle Ray Streets in 1909. Okay, and that's a big building. Huge. With the
0: really, really unique kind of um, mustard-coloured uh, tiles on the outside.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it was not It was actually only three storeys when it opened, but in 1926 they remodelled it and expanded it to eight storeys and connected it to the newly opened museum station. Yeah, because that's a cool thing about it, isn't it? That it's kind of attached to the entrance to the museum station. An occasionally open entrance. <laughs> Uh, The store was actually modelled on a Parisian department store, apparently, Uh and featured chandeliers, marble, a ballroom, and Australia's first escalator.
0: Oh, that seems like an early escalator. I didn't realise they were around that long ago.
1: 1909, apparently. Wow. And the store, as you said, it's quite striking in appearance. Uh, Hard to miss, since you're in that neck of the woods. And it's so showy inside and out that there was a saying around at the time for someone who had perhaps a touch too much confidence. You've got more front than Mark Foy's matey. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm sad sad that 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 doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If only we still had that phrase. If only we still spoke like this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure we ever spoke like that. (laughs) Maybe, who knows. How did they get so wealthy to be able to build this amazing edifice they must have had a successful shop on oxford street
1: they they must have i think it's a testament to retail at the time because a lot of department stores were just getting huge at this period mm. but i also mark the foy the younger was quite into the races
0: mm. an extravagant I that, man i
1: think that he might have um had a melbourne cup winning horse perhaps <laughs>
0: You put it all down to good luck in the gambling sphere.
1: <laughs> um, the store reached peak profitability in the 1950s.
0: Right. Okay. So that's actually quite a long time after it was built, though. Hmm.
1: Yeah. And they had opened an ice skating rink on the fifth floor. Wow. Um, for a Swiss-themed fashion parade they had up there.
0: I don't even know what a Swiss-themed fashion <laughs> parade would look like. <laughs>
1: That's true, actually. Um, but then things started to decline fairly dramatically in the 1960s as that whole area um, sort of deteriorated and stopped being a retail destination. Okay. So, in an attempt to kind of combat the shift to the suburbs, our new auto-centric retailing ways, mm. Mark Foy's opened um, new stores in Rockdale Plaza in 1963. I did not Eastwood know that. in 1964. Burwood in 1966, as well as stores in Chatswood, Northbridge, Double Bay, and Bankstown.
0: Wow. Okay. So nice spread across in every direction.
1: Yep. They went on a spree.
0: Yeah. And these would have been smaller stores then?
1: Definitely. Yeah. So probably a lot of them still exist to some extent or another. They've just been taken over by like a Big W or a Kmart or a Coles or something.
0: Right. And yeah. Okay. That's a good thing to try to track down all of those buildings. Mm. I didn't realize that they had <laughs> suburban Mark Foy's.
1: Yeah, well, they only started in 1963. And in 1968, Mark Foy's was acquired by a, um investment company called McDowell Holdings mm. and was then acquired by Walton's, a competitor's department store chain, in
0: 1972. Mm. Not a good sign. By
1: 1980, the city store was closed. Okay, so that's the main flagship one that we know well. Mm. We do. So it became a Grace Brothers for two years okay. until that too closed because the wasn't demand for department store on the corner of Liverpool and Elizabeth streets. Was it only a couple of hundred meters
0: from the other Grace Brothers, though as well?
1: yeah, uh yeah, it was. so they will get to Grace Brothers. There's another department store you've just thought of, yeah uh, yes, <laughs> there you go. That's another one I just thought of. <laughs> And so in 1991, the building reopened as the Downing Centre Law Courts, which is the purpose it fills to this day.
0: I was just chatting to my neighbour this afternoon saying I was going to record this episode. And he said, I think I think that the old Mark Foy's building is now something to do with the law courts. And he was spot on. Mm. So you can go, if, if you are on jury duty or something, you might end up in there.
1: Yeah, it's nice. the family court and a bunch of other courts. So, and various other legal bits and pieces i'm not the man to ask about such matters
0: yeah who knows whether juries get to go in there but anyhow if you find yourself in juries le- definitely legal do get to go in there oh, okay. because in
1: 2015 they added a special jury meeting room in the basement
0: oh mm. well maybe i'll need to get called up for jury duty
1: then <laughs> yeah so the other thing, apart from the famous building, that the Mark Foy name is most associated with in Sydney is actually the Hydro Majestic Hotel in Medlow Bath.
0: Of course, yes. I, I did know that because I believe you were one of the people who really encouraged me to go to the Hydro Majestic. But I think maybe five years ago or something, you said you should really go, it's great. And so then I did go.
1: And was it great?
0: <laughs> yeah. No, yes, it was a very fascinating experience because the, the man who kind of did the the tour of the historical building and told you a little bit about the the foy family uh was like oddly protective of uh, their family secrets and like kind of dropped hints about uh infidelity and kind of cruel treatment of different family members but then like refused to go into any more detail about it it was quite amusing
1: mm. yeah there's definitely a sordid history behind the Hydra Majestic. um and once i kind of started moving into that territory i thought oh this is This is a whole other episode. Yeah. So we won't go into any of that. What we will say is that there are two things about the hotel. One is that apparently the reason Foy opened it was because he mistakenly believed that there was a mineral spring there. Oh, so so that was a mistake. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And the famous casino dome that you'd recognize if you've been there or driven past uh, was actually made in Chicago. Wow. Shipped to Sydney and dragged up the hill by bullocks. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's impressive. So it couldn't fit on a
1: train? No, I figured it must have been too... I mean, it definitely is too big to get through the tunnels. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: wow. Also, just to clarify, just in case uh, any of our listeners don't know about the Hydro Majestic, it's a a hotel up in the Blue Mountains, right?
1: Mm, mm, Yeah, very spectacular hotel um, that has a long and kind of winding history that someone really should do a podcast about <laughs> yeah and you can see it from the highway going
0: through there right
1: yeah you can't miss it okay you can see it from every direction
0: <laughs> yeah nice yeah that that connection is yeah between those two rather spectacular buildings quite a long distance from each other is quite exciting
1: yeah, they definitely had a flair for the dramatic the foys <laughs> they did So the next Sydney uh, retailer slash retail dynasty you mentioned, Alistair, was the Hordens.
0: Yeah, I mostly just know them because of the Hordon Pavilion and as a teenager going to concerts there. Uh, And then I found out later in life that they were not actually famous for building a large hall for bands to play in, but were in fact a dynasty of uh, department store owners.
1: They were, and they have quite a lineage in Sydney, actually. Uh, the first Hordens was established by Anthony Horden in eighteen twenty three. Oh
0: wow. Yeah. That's a long
1: time ago. And he was a draper on King Street between Pitt and Castle Ray Streets.
0: Okay. So this is long before the foys had their first store.
1: This is this is really early. This is back in Macquarie days. Jeez, okay. Hardcore.
0: Yeah original yeah, yeah okay yeah.
1: the St- king street had probably barely been named <laughs> it was probably just a dirt
0: like road you know
1: yeah yeah and uh, this store is probably most famous for being credited with running the first ever display ad in an australian newspaper in 1834 in the sydney morning herald wow even the sydney morning herald would have been quite new at that point i imagine three years old i checked wow mm-hmm. yeah okay there were several generations of Horden that I won't go into from mm. the original Anthony Horden but they did adopt a retail name Anthony Horden and Sons Emporium. Okay. And they were trading on George Street a bit south of where Horden originally opened his store. So that's not the store you were referring to. No. That store in fact burned down. Okay. And in 1905 was replaced by a absolutely humongous department store that spanned a full city block. Yeah. And, and not a small city block either. <laughs> it's the block between Goulburn, Pitt, Liverpool and George streets on what used to be called Brickfield Hill.
0: Yeah. And that's where their first br- bricks were. Um, mm. The first clay was collected to make bricks that we discussed briefly at the start of the episode about red cedar.
1: Yeah. Probably in a couple of your old buildings, perhaps in the rum hospital.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But well, that's a huge block. That building must have been massive.
1: It It is massive. Uh, it's so impressive to look at. I'm going to post some photos on the Facebook page. Uh, it featured 52 acres of retail space and was the largest department store in the world at the time.
0: Oh, wow. Mm. So Sydney really had a thing for department stores then?
1: Yeah. And all these um, like retail magnates would go off on foreign jaunts to learn about the Department store ways of Paris and New York, and bring it back to Sydney. Yeah. And then turn it up to 11.
0: Yeah. Probably For the some people reason. from other places were coming here to see why we had such enormous bloody stores. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's going on down there? So the new emporium uh, employed about 4,000 people, and wow. inside it had a branch of the Commonwealth Bank, mm-hmm. tea rooms, a post office, public pay phones in 1905, wow. and a Thomas Cook travel agency.
0: There you go. It's always good to have the uh, bank immediately available within your retail space. Yeah, <laughs> as they know from pokey rooms to this day. Just have <laughs> yeah. the ATM just around the corner. <laughs> so, in
1: 1926, the company was sold um, to a publicly listed company for 2.9 million pounds. Okay, which was the most expensive Australian business sold at that point in time. Wow, about 242 million in today's money. Yeah, but those translations are always a bit confusing. Yeah, a lot of money. garbage. (laughs) Utter garbage. Shouldn't have even said it. (laughs) So things went well, presumably, until 1960, when, as we discussed, big downturn in CBD retail. So the Hordens did uh, more or less the same thing that the Foy's did. They opened a store in Wollongong. They opened a store in West Ryde. Okay. And they got bought out by Waltons in 1970.
0: Well, they were the same people who bought the foys, weren't they?
1: Yeah, the Waltons went on a spree. So they had their own enormous store in Sydney CBD where Galleries Victoria now stands. Uh-huh. cross store from QVB. But they had a bit more. They saw sort of saw what was coming. And when the 60s rolled around, they went for a super aggressive suburban growth strategy. Well played. So they bought... McDowell's, which owned Mark Foy's, they bought Marcus and Co. and they bought Horden and Sons. So by 1972, they had 96 department stores across Australia. Wow. So they went for a different approach. Um, Alan Bond actually famously bought Waltons and thus Horden in 1981 and lost 200 million dollars on that deal before selling it to another company that then went bankrupt in 1987. All right. So these are like
0: huge building assets, but the companies just aren't profitable.
1: Yeah, yeah, wasn't working out. So that's when the new Emporium was demolished in 1985.
0: Hang on. So the new, this is this is the huge Horden
1: department store the greatest department store in the known universe
0: is destroyed in
1: 1985 detonated in 1985 and it actually remained a hole in the ground for about 15 years until the world square development started around 2000
0: yeah okay i've heard i've read that before so for the first years of our life jed there was just a big hole in the middle of the city (laughs)
1: yes
0: (laughs) i don't remember it but i probably wasn't looking very closely
1: Yeah, I don't think I was spending much time in Sydney CBD at that point. Newcastle CBD was also a hole. (laughs) Different kind of hole. Different kind of hole. So there's a couple of interesting little anecdotes about the Hordens. One is about the famous oak tree on their logo. Okay. I don't know what their logo looks like. Maybe I'll have to look at it. It's an oak tree. Okay. And the beautiful oak tree. (laughs) So I think it was around the 1860s it was adopted as the Horden and Sons logo hmm. and it featured underneath a slogan, While I live, I'll grow. Hmm. And they put it on their store windows, they put it on their stationery. It's quite well known. Hmm. And then in the 1920s, Anthony Horden, not the founder of the dynasty, but another one. Yeah, the, the <laughs> founder's long dead. He was around <laughs> the in the combat year, right? Yeah. So this Anthony Horden, he's driving around in his motor car... Uh, down the old Hume Highway past Picton, Mm. and he spots a Port Jackson fig that looks strikingly like his family's (laughs) logo. Yeah. So he stops the car and uh, arranges with the landowner to erect a big sign next to the tree that (laughs) says... "Proclaims it. (laughs) While I live, I'll grow, and says something about the Horton family. So they do that. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is on the side of the old Hume Highway before there was a new Hume, Hume Highway. Right, also presumably
0: this this tree, while being a beautiful oak tree, has nothing to do with the history of their
1: family. It looks like their logo. <laughs> right. It's not even the right kind of tree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that was all well and good until the 60s, a <laughs> aforementioned downturn in the fortune of the family. Mm. And the... Canberra Times published this article in 1966. Sydney, Thursday. An immediate search has been ordered by the police commissioner, Mr Allen, for the person who drilled more than 52 inch holes into a historic 100-year-old Port Jackson fig tree. The person then injected a hormone chemical into the tree, which is now likely to die. The tree, just off the Hume Highway on Razorback Mountain near Camden, has been the symbol of Anthony Horden's store for more than 30 years. Mr. Allen said he was shocked that anyone should cause such senseless damage. The managing director of Anthony Horden & Sons Limited, Mr. Frank Munro, said a tree doctor would be engaged to try and save the tree planted in 1866 on property now owned by Mrs. E. Hill of Camden.
0: Oh no, someone's taken down the tree. And while their business is failing. It's a double <laughs> yeah. hit for them. <laughs> yep. oh no any any update on who this tree vandal was
1: no i didn't find it but the tree seems to have survived because there was another news story eight years later in 1974 that the tree was struck by lightning split into and blown over in a storm
0: oh gosh it really copped at this tree yeah after the tree doctor's work and all
1: I just love how it says, the tree has been a symbol of the store for more than 30 over years. 30 years. <laughs> it's like, the store's at this point is like 150 years old.
0: <laughs> uh, well, at least, yeah, at least actually it's quite accurate journalism, isn't it? I feel like yeah. you'd expect more that they'd be like, it's been a symbol for 150 years, because that's the easier that's true. story to come up with. That's true. They actually bothered
1: to find out that the guy just drove past in 1920. Impressive. Yeah, you're right. One for the Canberra Times. <laughs> but the story of the Horden retail dynasty doesn't quite finish there mm. because in 1962, perhaps seeing the sign of the times in the CBD, two fifth generation hordens decided to open their own store in Windsor mm. called H&R Horden Value Department Store.
0: Oh, I'm liking the sound of this. Is this a, a kind of $2 store bargain basement bonanza?
1: A little bit. It's a a little bit. It was men's fashion, ladies' fashion, and hardware, apparently. Mm. And they said they chose Windsor because, quote, we like the area, it's slowly expanding, and dramatic things don't happen here.
0: (laughs) Nice. Okay, so they've kind of lowered their expectations then.
1: And they ran that store until they were both in their 70s, and they closed it in 1998.
0: Oh, wow. So Which that was... finally ended
1: 173 years of Horden family retailing in Sydney.
0: Wow. It's a shame that they've closed. I feel like it could have been a pilgrimage for us to go to the last remaining Horden Dynasty shop. Yeah. So it was still it was still going strong, though, long after the, the there was just a big hole in the middle of the CBD.
1: Yeah. They were just about to start World Square when the, these guys were still selling odds and ends.
0: <laughs> That's a good story.
1: Yeah, so that's the Hordens, but you'll be pleased to know there's still a few department stores in Sydney we can make historic
0: pilgrimages to. <laughs> good, good. Uh, any uh, any information you can share with me about the Hordon Pavilion?
1: None. All right. I strictly stuck to my mandate of department stores. Cut
0: that out of the script.
1: So I thought I'd swing by Grace Brothers, Alistair. You mentioned them, well, I mentioned them earlier, and you took an interest in yeah. one of their CBD locations. So they, I think, see, I'm not
0: very good at shopping things, but I think that they're quite famous for their Christmas displays. Would that be
1: right? No, that's David Jones. There you go. So I don't know the difference between (laughs)
0: Grace Brothers and David
1: Jones. So Grace Brothers was founded in 1885 by Albert and Joseph Grace. Mm. They migrated from England and they started out selling goods door to door before they opened a small shop on George Street that year.
0: It's a good last name, isn't it? Grace.
1: Mm. Hmm. And first name if you're that way inclined.
0: Oh, it's it's a lovely first name too. I don't think I've ever heard it as a last name, but works well for calling a company Grace Brothers.
1: Mm. So within 20 years, they were opening a five-story department store at Broadway. Okay. And you should know this building. The five... Since you've been in it.
0: Oh. A five-story department store on Broadway. And I've been in it. Um is it closely attached to central station
1: no half of it is broadway shopping center oh, and the other half is uni yeah, okay. uh, some sort of uni accommodation
0: yes yes yeah and it has that it, it does have a nice dome on it and i think it still yeah, has the lettering for globes, grace brothers
1: and it's exactly yeah that's why i thought you'd get it
0: <laughs> well I, yeah I, I think i was thinking of broadway like more like just that curve after railway square
1: nope right at the shopping center yeah <laughs> so <laughs> funny that yeah Yeah, okay no
0: i I know the building you're talking about
1: and that store was so iconic that when the good queen of england visited australia in 1954 she just had to go there
0: wow it's a funny one because it's a little bit further outside the cbd right compared to these other ones we're talking about
1: yeah yeah it was down in a different area which seemed to work for them just fine by the 1920s their store was advertising selling three and a half acres of furniture
0: Wow, when did you say that one was built? The one on
1: Broadway, nineteen
0: oh five. Okay, these are all built the same time, right? These huge, yeah, they're all
1: kind, all three of those, same, almost the exact same time. Yeah,
0: nineteen oh five. Okay,
1: so the Grace Brothers went a little bit of a different direction. They they had a bit a bit more of a focus on furniture, but they did sell a lot of other stuff as well, and they kind of realized ahead of the other stores what was coming in terms of the direction Sydney was heading in. Mm -hmm. So in 1911, they opened um, one of Sydney's first removalist companies with two horse-drawn carts, which still functions to this day, Grace Removals. Oh, wow. Hang on. This uh, This is only six years after they built the building. This is very, very
0: early to realize that cars are coming to suburbanize Sydney.
1: Yeah. Well, they realized that people would want to move their furniture with them because I think kind of prior to this point, you would often rent rooms with furniture. furniture. Okay. They're selling all this furniture and they're helping people move it around as well at the same time. So it's sort nice. of a new lifestyle, if you will. Right.
0: And and this company still exists today, this moving company.
1: Grace Removalist. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's a big company. I think company. I might know it maybe. Yeah, do you see those yeah. trucks? Yeah, okay. So there is actually
0: a direct relationship between that and Grace Brothers.
1: Yeah. Huh. Yeah yep so albert grace who was the longer lasting of the two brothers he ran the business until his death in 1938 mm. and even at that point he'd already started leading the business away from the city towards the suburbs
0: okay so they're really so about 20 the...
1: years or more before the others got to it yeah
0: yeah i feel like it, the, there was already signs of this when they built their department store kind of on the outskirts of the cbd
1: yeah maybe so in 1933 they opened stores in Parramatta and Bondi Junction which they rebuilt in 1957 to provide substantially more parking Mm -hmm. and in 1965 Grace Brothers was the flagship tenant at the Roselands Shopping Center which was the first suburban mega mall as we know them today in Mm. Sydney with over 3,000 car spaces and according to the Sydney Morning Herald full advertising spread from the day, quote, enclosed and climate controlled to the temperature of a pleasant spring day all year through.
0: There you go. They are living the suburban dream and they are well ahead of these other stores who still have their quaint, beautiful inner city tile and (laughs) brick beauty. None of that. It's just, just parking malls now and air conditioning.
1: Just parking and air conditioning, that's how you like it. That's why you spent so long in California, the home of parking and air conditioning. <laughs> There's a lot
0: of parking and air conditioning in California.
1: <laughs> so the latter half of the 20th century led to a massive growth in the number of Grace Brothers stores, mostly across suburban Sydney and regional New South Wales, the latter of which have nearly all closed. And uh, the store rebranded as Meyer in 2004 after it being acquired by Coles Meyer or whatever it was called in the 1980s. Right. Yeah, okay. This all makes sense. And they're still around, still kicking. hmm So the presence of the store has been steadily declining since the 1990s, although there remain still 13 stores across Sydney today. Interestingly, none of the remaining Myers are like a standalone department store. They're all flagship tenants in huge shopping centers. Yeah,
0: that's how I kind of know them now. That makes sense. In big Westfields or things like that.
1: Exactly, and most of them kind of adopt that American model, you know, of the enclosed mall, as you're saying. Although, I feel like the big difference is that the Australian version's usually, like, in an existing shopping area, and the parking's kind of on top or underneath. Yeah. Whereas the American version's, like, dumped in the middle of just a sea of asphalt.
0: Yes, that's true.
1: And there's a couple of these Westfields that are actually built right into the fabric of the area, like the one in the city, where... The Maya store is today On Market Street
0: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure There's one in Bondi Junction And that's another example Of a shopping centre That kind of had to Kind of dig underneath it To get parking And it's very much Right in the middle of the area Where there's a bit of density In Bondi Junction
1: Mm. So that's the Grace Brothers That you may find on Market Street And there's a couple of Other famous department stores That are based on Market Street, Alistair
0: well sorry it's it's now my is there right yes yeah, yeah um so other department stores on market street is this is this the past one and
1: of? present <laughs> is this david jones david jones Excellent. your christmas display place
0: great and that's kind of on the near the corner with uh, the corner
1: of elizabeth street is that right well, up until very recently, there was two David Joneses on Market Street. Oh. Um, the remaining one is indeed on the corner of Elizabeth. When we were but young lads, yeah, that was the women's store and the men's store was on the corner of Castle Ray Street. Oh, okay. And that's now something else? Yeah, according to Near Maps, uh, aerial imagery, it currently has a crane sticking out of the middle of it. <laughs> Not much <laughs> so mail shopping Something going on happening there. there. <laughs> yeah. So David Jones migrated from Wales in 1834 and he started his store, his eponymous store four years later.
0: That makes sense. Jones is the most common surname in Wales.
1: Even more common than Grace.
0: I believe it's a very common name. I mostly know this uh, because if you watch a rugby union game where Wales is playing, a very proud rugby union nation, their team, like most of their players' last name is Jones. So it's like Jones passes to Jones and Jones is going down the sideline, he's back to Jones and Jones scores. (laughs) That does sound like commentary. Exactly. I'm pretty good at commentary. All right. <laughs> nice. So when, when did he come again? 1840s? He came in
1: 1834. He uh-huh. opened his eponymous store four years later in 1838. So he's pretty early as well. He's early. He's early. And his mission for his business was to sell the best and most exclusive goods and to carry stock that embraces the everyday wants of mankind at large.
0: Sounds like a noble goal.
1: Yeah, they also sound like slightly at odds with each other, those two goals. <laughs> or maybe he's just indicating that mankind at large does want the best and most exclusive goods. Yeah,
0: that's all they want. Nothing less will do.
1: Well, it's obviously stood the David Jones um, dynasty in good stead. Yeah. So Jones opened his original store on Barrack Street, a uh, corner of Barrack and George at Wynyard in 1838. Which was across the road from the GPO oh,
0: okay, so what's now
1: Martin place? Yeah, so no back streets on the other side of the road, so oh right. the GPO was at its current location in since 1830, but the current building obviously wasn't built yet. The post okay. office prior to that had been located at Bend Street a little to the north.
0: right, so this is when the GPO was uh, at the location it still is today, but a less impressive
1: building. yeah. So that David Jones store shut about 150 years later in the 1980s. Oh, okay. So, so that
0: original location stayed through.
1: Yeah, 1980s apparently. So, but there is a plaque at the location commemorating it.
0: I will go and have a look for that plaque. It's quite close to my work.
1: So David Jones ran his business for 18 years before he handed it over to his son. And then he had to come back out of retirement to save the store from bankruptcy. <laughs> Classic problem with sons. <laughs> before retiring for real in
0: 1868. Yeah. And I take it the son wasn't given a second chance?
1: No, he did he did so when unless was a different son no i'm pretty sure he did so when david jones wasn't running his successful business he also enjoyed serving as an alderman of the city of sydney in the 1840s Mm -hmm. which makes me think he might have been one of those holdouts about your sewer system i was gonna
0: say he would have been involved in the sewer system yeah
1: (laughs) very exciting probably thinking it was a huge waste of money (laughs) darling point had perfectly good sewer
0: yeah yeah he would have been a very surrounded early, by water early older than two. <laughs> the sewers are fine well unless it was getting kind of making his property a bit smelly the wafting air from, from the uh, open sewers that's into true he's harbor. right across
1: the road from the tank stream yeah maybe he was mm. actually
0: quite excited about pumping it off somewhere else
1: yeah that's true well he was also a member of the Legislative Council of New South Wales in the 1850s mm. so he definitely could have done something about those social ills
0: yeah so an early politician then
1: yeah, but, like, every sort of significant businessman in the colony of that period was also a politician because right. that was the pool from which they drew and there wasn't that deep of a pool. Yeah. So it's like all the Macleays were politicians. It was just, like, obligatory.
0: A, a <laughs> if you're wealthy, you're a politician.
1: Yeah. So his son, Edward Lloyd-Jones, uh, took back over the store after the old man passed, and he went on one of these famous business research jaunts A junket, if you will, to Europe and America. Mm. And he came back with the idea of a bigger department store. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: funny, that seems to be what all of them came back with.
1: (laughs) But they were a little ahead of the curve because they opened their, they rebuilt their George Street store in 1887. And that had the city's first hydraulic lift or elevator. Mm -hmm. And three years later, they launched their mail order business, which was also quite early. And the significance of their store in the 1880s and 90s is made apparent by the fact that both the kings of Fiji and Tonga visited the store. Mm. So a bit more royalty. Royalty, love a department store.
0: Love a good department store. Yeah, so this was before that spree of other glamorous department stores in 1905. So well before that, we had the original glamorous department store.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so in 1920, David Jones listed publicly and they started construction on their new store on the corner of Market and Elizabeth, where you are quite right to point out they still reside today. Mm-hmm. Although that move was considered madness at the time as it was far too remote from the city's main retail area down near QVB. Oh, it's not a very long walk. <laughs> no, it's like, it's like 300 <laughs> metres at most. Yeah, Madness, go. I say.
0: And Mark Foy's was down the road even further.
1: Yeah. Because they, they were on the outskirts, the boys. Who knows about that? It's so that's just a throwaway from an article I read. It would mean <laughs> nothing.
0: No, I can see it. I also, at the time, I think that Hyde Park might have been a bit of a construction zone because they would have been just put in the, the railway lines through there.
1: Yeah, you think that would make opening a store there a good thing. You're like, look, okay, it's going to be a bit weird for the first six years, but once this <laughs> St. James Station opens, we're going to be in the center of everything.
0: Yeah, once the trees grow a little bit more. Yeah, Yeah. okay,
1: fair. Mm. So in 1938, 100 years of David Jones was celebrated by Prime Minister Billy Hughes opening their, officially opening their second store on Market Street, third store in the city.
0: It's Billy Hughes. We were just talking about him last, last episode.
1: Yeah, and here he is, cutting ribbons on retail stores. That's, sounds definitely like... sold out by this point.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, how exciting. Okay, so there's royalty, there's prime ministers, everyone's getting into it. Well, there's
1: about to be more royalty because on that same tour in 1954, the Queen also visited David Jones' flagship store in the city.
0: Mm. So the two department stores chosen by the Queen herself were Grace Brothers and David Jones.
1: Interestingly, the two that still stand today. Mm. And so does the Queen, potentially. Coincidence? Rumors rumors abound. Uh. (laughs) But this isn't a podcast episode about the Queen's possible untimely death. It's about department stores in Sydney. That she
0: visited many, many decades ago.
1: (laughs) So in the late 1950s david jones started expanding uh, as everyone was doing out of the city mm-hmm. but again a bit earlier like kind of getting ahead of it yeah and so to this day there's now david jones stores in a lot of the same places as Maya stores in fact what i found strange while looking up where the stores are today is there's actually more shopping centers in sydney that have both a myers and a dj a- yeah than shopping centers that just have one of the two. <laughs> it is funny Which is funny, so that. <laughs> weird because they're like the same.
0: Yeah, but it does always happen, right? Like one end of the shopping center has the Myers and the other has the David Jones on the other end.
1: To what end? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, far be it from us to understand how retail works. I'm sure there's a good reason for it.
1: All uh, right. Um In 2014, David Jones was taken over by a South African company who moved their offices from Sydney to Melbourne. <sighs> Blasphemy. I know, And in 2020, they closed the Market Street and Castle Ray Street store, leaving the CBD with a single David Jones for the first time in 100 years. Wow. And so
0: does that also mean that on the topic of Melbourne, that all of the department, major department stores
1: in Australia, yeah, have a Sydney origin? If the only remaining significant department stores in Australia are Meyer and David Jones, then yes. Yeah, there you go. I don't know of any others, but I don't know that much about department stores. Well, Melbourne barely existed when they these companies were launching. Yeah. It was just a glint in Batman's eye.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And David Jones holds the record for the oldest continually operating department store in the world, still trading under its original name.
0: Oh, there's a lot of world records in this episode.
1: Yeah, but I think what I have learned from this is that Sydney has serious department store pedigree on an international scale.
0: (laughs) We're really into department stores.
1: So have you got any more department stores for me, Alistair, up your sleeve So, in Sydney?
0: Until a couple of weeks ago, absolutely not. But then I found out about that Wins department store because there was a fire in it, but it was a very small store. Um, And that's the only other one I know of.
1: Definitely not on my list. Uh, There was a famous department store called Buckingham's that burnt down in the 1960s in spectacular fashion. Okay, I've never heard of that one. And that was where Oxford Square is now, on Oxford Street and Riley. Okay. But I only have one more department store story for you, and it's one that's particularly close to my heart. It's the story of Gowing's
0: okay i want to say that i've heard something about is is it because it started in newcastle and has a nope. big store in newcastle
1: it's nothing to do with newcastle okay tell me about gowings so john gowing opened his drapery in crown street in darlinghurst in 1863 before moving to the better known site of the store on market and george street in 1868 in 1929, the store was redeveloped in the commercial palazzo style, and that was done by his son.: Very nice. Also Mr. Gowing. They occupied that so- that's, you know that space so sort of famously for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. They're probably the only department store in the city that survived into our lifespans without becoming enormous
0: right so yeah okay without expanding all over into the suburbs and things like that they just kept to what they were doing
1: yeah so by about 1990 they were still one store one department store in the cbd oh um and it was quite recognizable because it had a big uh super old school like um light up sign hanging off the side of the building yeah okay and it was on my walk to school which is why i was acquainted Ah. with it but in the late 20th century they also were like oh no this CBD retail business doesn't seem to be all it's cracked up to be. I'm not sure how they lasted forty say, more years did than everyone else. This only
0: just occurred to them then, That's but me. they
1: thought, right, well, you know, we know what we need to do. We need to open stores in Parramatta, Hornsby, Wynyard, and Darlinghurst.
0: Wow. Okay, so instead of just kind of packing it in, they went for an aggressive expansion policy in the late '90s.
1: Sadly, all those stores were unsuccessful. They bled the profitability of the main store. Oh no. Gowing Lost it all. They lost it all. So in 2001, Gowing's group spun off the retail arm uh, to a publicly listed company, and it was 19% owned by Lowe's. And then in 2005, it closed completely.
0: Tragic. They were doing so well.
1: They were. So now, nowadays, Gowing's still exists in name, mm. but it's actually a faceless investment company that owns, amongst many other random assortment of australian businesses a shopping center in coffs harbour okay and the investment philosophy part of their webpage opens by telling us that quote their focus is to preserve and accumulate capital on an intergenerational basis <laughs> isn't that everyone's focus <laughs> <laughs> that's all wealthy people's focus
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so funny yeah, that's great. I love websites like that. Like for those faceless companies, guy, like, I'm not even sure what this does apart from just money it seems to go somewhere, and then there's more money. And then.
1: Very nice. So the famous Gowing store closed in 2005, and I went there. That was where I got my birthday presents for people in 2004 and five. It was Holy very gosh. sad when it closed. I had to start thinking about getting presents somewhere else. What kind of presents were you getting? Oh, like socks for dad probably oh nice (laughs) you know just classic
0: presents (laughs) just the kind of presents you need to get yeah okay
1: but it's a famous well famous is probably a bit strong but it's a prominent retail frontage in sydney cbd georgian market can you just give me some context i'm sorry it's bad at
0: street names whereabouts is this like what's close to it
1: uh QV, the northern end of qvb is on market so it's across the road from qvb it's across the road from the Maya, which is in the expanded westfield center point uh-huh next door to the state theater okay so you know some pedigree in there yeah and after gowings moved out it was first home to a Supreme, which i remember being extremely offended about <laughs> can't get any <laughs> socks for dad there no and then it became a top shop the first top shop in Australia, I believe. Okay,
0: I think, yeah, okay.
1: And now, it, apparently, I walked past it the other day. It's a makeup shop, I think, called Mecca.
0: I think I've walked past that makeup shop too. I feel like, they, yeah, the the companies that are in that retail space are like increasingly loud and uh, <laughs> <laughs> loud visually and <laughs> yeah. in terms of the audio coming from there.
1: Yeah, and upstairs is a Art Deco boutique hotel in... Uh, which features a bar called the Gowings Bar and Grill.
0: Well that's a destination we can go to.
1: Yeah. Pack your overnight bag, Alistair. We're going on a holiday.
0: <laughs> I'm looking forward to it to the grill, to the Art Deco Bar and Grill.
1: And there's a little a little side anecdote as well about Gowings here. So in Simile and other evaluative idioms in Australian English, which yeah. just sounds like a spellbinding book. <laughs> Pam Peters explains the meanings of a well-known Australian phrase, presumably from days gone by, gone to Gowings. Have you heard of that one?
0: No, but it's uh, like the alliteration. It sounds like a good good idiom.
1: So, So, buckle in. This is a bit of a long one. Yeah. The metropolitan idiom, gone to Gowings, referring to a men's department store in Sydney, is remarkable for its polysemy. Or indeterminacy of meaning Oh gosh, okay Lucky she said (laughs) Yeah, because I don't know what that means Okay,
0: great So this is proper linguistics here Yeah, okay Yeah.
1: The phrase seems to have originated In a series of 1940s advertisements for Gowings Showing scenes vacated in a hurry By those seeking bargains What? (laughs) One of these scenarios A church Focused on the explanatory note Gone to Gowings Fastened to the altar by the bridegroom Who had cut short the wait for his bride
0: I see. I was, I was kind of confused as to how this advert would work, but now I understand. So it's like a vacated space with just a little note saying gone to gowings.
1: Uh-huh. This would account for it becoming a general excuse for someone's absence, <laughs> doing something else which cannot or should not be specified. <laughs> Yet, with the elusiveness of its denotation, it has acquired various other applications. In the Macquarie Dictionary, it is associated with going under in three different ways. Uh-huh financial deterioration, the failure of a horse or sports team to win, (laughs) and illness, especially a hangover, from overconsumption of alcohol. This is a broad range of meanings. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Baker reported it as one of many idioms for drunkenness. Meanwhile, in citations obtained from a Google search of Australian internet documents in 2004, gone to Gowings is commonly used to refer to dementia. (laughs)
0: that's so this is a phrase that has been used to mean almost anything kind of there's something holding all of those meanings together
1: yeah and it's got 60 years of definition and it's changed over time and i feel like there's something in it going from a broad excuse to drunkenness to dementia yeah almost like the life trajectory of a gowings customer (laughs) (laughs) but this this uh this um definition continues Both drunkenness and dementia are the focus of other Australian euphemistic paraphrases, and the pragmatic implications of gone to Gowings used to cover unexplained absence and or dubious condition have given it a life of its own. Right. Gowings itself continued to trade successfully in everyday clothing decades after the advertising campaign that made its name a household phrase. It's
0: a good phrase. I think we should bring that back. If I mean, probably people are going to say it's still around because they're still using it. I've never heard it, and I feel like we should use it more.
1: Yeah, I have a feeling my dad will be like, oh, I've gone to Gowings. Why I say that every other day? Haven't you noticed?
0: No. Um, yeah, it's a really good one. It rolls off the tongue well. It, I feel like it's a very uh, Australian thing to, to be trying to cover up what someone's actually up to. With an amusing euphemism.
1: One source I read was about uni students in like the 50s. And when a teacher would be reading out the role, they'd shout out, gone to Gowings <laughs> when their mate wasn't in class. Priceless. <laughs> but it's also insidious capitalism, yeah. capitalist earworm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's fine mar- now, of course, they don't exist. Well, they're just a faceless investment company.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, whoever the marketing team was behind that, they've done very well for themselves. Brilliant. In fact, a little too well. It's all, yeah. Now they're not actually making any profit for gowings at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) But they're still getting this advertising space from us. So that's all my department stores, Alistair.
0: It was wonderful. I really liked having a different format this week where we kind of talked about a number of small stories. It was really great as well to get the big picture of just how many very large department stores there were in the city uh, and how presumably... Important they would have been to people's everyday lives for a good century there.
1: Hopefully didn't get too bored with all the shopping talk.
0: No, I feel like you did very well at managing to talk about shops without actually talking about shopping too much.
1: (laughs) Glad you like that. (laughs) We still don't know any of what they actually sold.
0: (laughs) Right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) Amusing stories about trees,
1: logos, catchphrases. yeah, (laughs) Mm,
0: Removalists. Everything but what they were actually selling in their shops.
1: <laughs> Forms of transport. I managed to slip the first escalator and the first elevator in Sydney in there.
0: Yeah. Um, also, you managed to get bullocks pulling up a dome over some mountains.
1: <laughs> Bloody good show. And yeah. Museum Station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very well done. Excellent. Glad you liked it. All righty. So, Alistair, I believe you've prepared a clue for our story next week.
0: I have somewhat hastily, but I think it's going to do the job. You might have noticed, Jed, that I've uh, so far delivered on my... Well, delivered, perhaps not well, but have delivered in some sense on my political story and my uh, economic story. But I have Normally not I yet.
1: remembered what your
0: other one was. It was another topic that uh, seemed intimidating and difficult to confront, and it was religion. Mm. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about a number of institutions in Sydney that are related to a lesser-known mysterious religious group. Um, And the building that I'd like to include in my clue here is an amphitheater built at Balmoral Beach uh, in the early 1920s, which uh, was described as having the best view of the heads in Sydney. And at the time, there was a lot of chatter about what this group was doing with this large theatre. The word on the street around Sydney was that it was built for the second coming of Jesus Christ, who was expected to walk between the Sydney heads into the harbour and arrive at the amphitheatre at Balmoral Beach to address his adoring crowd.
1: Well, that's very exciting. (laughs) I best get down there.
0: What? Sadly, the amphitheater doesn't exist anymore. I think it was destroyed in the early 50s. But one thing that still does survive from this group, Jed, is one of Sydney's most popular talk radio stations, which they founded also in this period in the 1920s.
1: Mm. Well, I know there's 2UE, 2GB. I think that's all of the talk radio stations I know. Well, you're already... Did I get it? Yeah, one of them. (laughs) Yes. I don't know anything about the history of either... Well, you're going to find out
0: all about it in our next episode, Jed.
1: Excellent. A wacky religious cult from Balmoral.
0: Yep. That's exactly what it's going to be.
1: Very exciting. I'm looking forward to it.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for this episode, Jed. It was fantastic.
1: I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this little series of vignettes from Sydney as much as I enjoyed telling them. Um, if you've got any questions or comments, you can get in touch with us on our social media platforms or our email address, which is storiesfromsydney@gmail.com. I'm also going to post a couple of photos from, uh, things relating to this episode on social media. Cause there's lots of very cool photos. What I won't be posting is any information about sources because I pulled it all from Wikipedia and <laughs> newspaper articles and random blogs. Fair enough. See you next time for Alistair's story from Sydney. See you then.